This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Organizations, you know, we've been talking about uh, the tragedy that happened in Humboldt, Saskatchewan uh, since since it happened on Friday. And uh, it has left the country in, in, in just a, a very sad state. A lot of people now taking that grief and, and paying it forward. We're seeing, of course, uh, we had the CEO of uh, GoFundMe on yesterday as the page for them, for the for the victims of the Humboldt accident, uh, topped over $5 million. Also, record amounts uh, donating blood. Uh, clinics across the country noticing an increase in people donating blood. Also, an increase in organ donation, uh, which is just, you know, an incredible story after uh, a player who had passed away had uh, signed up and made sure that his organs were being donated. And as a result of that, uh, it looks like more are following that path. Let's bring in Ronnie Gabsey. Ronnie is the president and CEO of the Trillium Gift of Life Network and is on the line with us now. Ronnie, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Good to be with you again, Scott. So, uh, Ronnie, is this true? Are we seeing an interest in people wanting to donate their organs? We certainly are. Uh, We saw on Sunday which was actually the day that uh, people became aware that this young man, Logan, had uh, registered consent, let his family know uh, that he wished to be an organ donor, and they had uh, respected his wishes. That Sunday, we saw a four times increase on the number of registrations on an average Sunday. And then yesterday, which is the day after Sunday, on Monday... That number doubled. Really? That number doubled. Now, of course, we cannot directly tie uh, the numbers of registrations to a particular individual or event. And, in fact, these huge increases that we're seeing are only measuring the online donations, which are the ones we can track day by day. But uh, we certainly believe that Logan has motivated and inspired people. People are taking action. Uh, Logan Boulay, of course, uh, from the Humboldt Broncos. He was 21 years old from Lethbridge, Alberta. And I understand that six people have benefited from, from his donation. That's what, that's what we have learned. And you know what I think is very important to note? Uh, Approximately 90% of of Canadians, when they're surveyed, say they believe in organ donation. And yet, in Canada, only 20% of the population have registered. What makes Logan so different is that he did not procrastinate. He, a 21-year-old, had many things on his mind, including his hockey tournament. And yet, he registered and he told his family, and he has saved lives. Why cannot the rest of us do the same? We are Canadians. We are the considerate, kind, generous Canadians. We are the donor nation. You know, our our neighbors to the south have a 56% registration rate across the country. We have a 20%. This is not good enough. Uh, In honor of, of this young man, let everybody register and do it now. 
How do you explain the U.S. having such a greater uh, participation than what we do? First of all, they've been at it longer. You know, uh, uh, educating the public is something you do in layers. It takes years. You get, you make them aware over and over and over again. And they've had uh, more decades than we have to, to do that. And uh, they also have huge um, media campaigns, and we are growing into that. And we will find, just as we are this week, that uh, individuals can be tremendously inspirational. Logan is an example. Helen Campbell was an example. But it is very difficult to sustain that kind of motivation. So we need to continue constantly to talk about it. But certainly it is hard for me to understand how anyone can know what Logan has done and then sit still and be complacent. Uh, have you ever seen, um, is there any way, obviously with, with online donations, uh, uh, registration rather, you can, you can uh, keep track of this. Is this the, is this the greatest single uh, donation period that you've seen before? Has this ever happened before? Does this happen often? We, we d- it doesn't happen often. We have seen it. We saw it, as I mentioned, when Ellen Campbell connected with Justin Bieber. We saw the numbers peak. When she connected with Ellen DeGeneres, we saw the numbers peak. But they aren't sustained, and this is a, This has affected all Canadians. Logan has affected all Canadians. So we expect that uh, his, his example... And the, the great desire that we see to honor him and his teammates uh, will have a, a, a lasting impact. You know, we too at Trillium Gift of Life Network have a hockey stick leaning against our wall. Uh, this has hit us all in the heart, and, and I'm sure it has uh, all other Canadians as well. Uh how long do you hope this momentum to keep going? Uh, how do you keep it going? Well, we will keep it going by talking about him and using him as, as our example of, of talking about his heroism. I'm sure his parents were proud of him for many reasons, but now they, they, in their sorrow, they must be glowing with pride because he has saved the lives of several others. And we expect it will have an impact not only on people across Canada, but in Ontario, where our registration rate is 32%. In Hamilton, where it is 37%. We want all of these numbers, which we've seen growing and growing very gradually, to stop being so gradual. And we believe Logan, as long as we talk about him, will continue to have an impact. Uh, tell people how we sign up. There are several ways to register. The simplest, fastest way is to go to beadonor.ca online. I'm on there have now. Your o- have your OHIP number. That's on the front of the card, right? You have a no, yes. You have, have a photo your one. OHIP number. Yeah. Yes, and you just put in your OHIP number, and you're going to have to put in your age, Scott. Yeah, I got that. What What about the health card version code? What does that mean? 
Uh, on the health card, there is a, a, a small version code. Where would that be? Two numbers on the on the front. Two numbers? Yeah. Oh, I can't find that. So uh, how else can we register? You can go to any Service Ontario office, and uh, you can register there. You will get a, a notification to register when you renew your health card or your driver's license. In fact, a registration form will come in the mail, and you can mail it in. You can also download the form from beadonor.ca, fill it in by hand, and mail it in. And why do you think people are apprehensive about this? Why do you, like, you know, you said that, that everybody thinks that this is a great idea, but very few are taking the chance. Very few are, are doing it. Well, we do hear about some myths. Some people think they're too old, but in fact, age is not a factor. The uh, oldest recorded uh, tissue donor was over 100, and organ donor over 90, so age is not a factor. Some think that previous illnesses may preclude them, but in fact, that's not the case. Everyone should register. Every one of us will be tested for medical suitability. Some think that their religions don't allow it. This is not the case. Every major religion not only allows it, they encourage it, they in fact consider it an obligation above all else if you can save a life. The main reason for people not registering is that they procrastinate. They think it's right and someday they'll get around to it. Do not procrastinate. Logan did not procrastinate. Hey, I did it. Uh, you you are, did it. Yes. Scott, you're I, in. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm so sorry, but I was doing it while you were talking to me on the phone. That's I've got, that's, all right. That's why I asked you about that, that number. Okay, so uh, I just thrilled. did it. I did, and, you know, I was one of those guys I had done it on my license and all, a long time ago, but, you know, that doesn't count anymore, does it? No, the paper card that came with your license. You know, we never found those in time. Now you are formally registered. Now you have given the gift of life. The only thing left, Scott, is tell your family. Yeah, I will do that. Uh, no, again, I had. I remember when I was like 16, way back when, when I first got my license, everybody would sign their donor card, and then it changed over, and I guess, you know, I'm the same way. I'm guilty. I kept procrastinating, and I never redid it the new way that you're supposed to do it. And I bet there's a lot of people out there that are probably my age that did the old way and haven't gone back in and done it online or this way. Uh, it is I very, believe you're right. It is very, very easy. It, it simply asks you for your birth date and your health card number, and then it asks you for the verification which are the two letters at the end of your number if you have one of the uh, uh, photo cards, if you have one of the old red ones, which you need to get replaced soon, by the way. Uh, it's on the bottom, and it, it's, it's just basically a letter or so. So it was that easy, and while I was talking uh, to Ronnie in those uh, couple of short minutes, I actually did it myself, and uh, I have been confirmed. It says, you are a registered organ and tissue donor on behalf of all Ontarians waiting for a life-saving transplant. Thank you. Geez, you know, I feel better because of that now, because I've been, oh. talk I've been thinking about this forever. And I've never, you know, you're wonderful. Well, not quite, but uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, so as 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 uh, an organization, 
Um, it's unfortunate that these scenarios have to happen in order for people like me to get up up, up off my butt and, and actually do something. It is, an, it is an, but, but we accept that we have to keep talking. We must keep talking. People don't act immediately. They, have, they learn about it. They have to learn more about it. They have to think about it, and then they act. And sometimes they have to be jolted into action. Hmm. You know what? Let's do a challenge here. Okay, so when the time I was just talking to Ronnie there, I literally went and opened my wallet, got my health card, went online and did, you know, put it, it takes you like literally two minutes and put in my health card number and my birth date and blammo, it is done. So let's do this challenge because we're on the air until three o'clock. So anyone out the course over the course of the afternoon between now and three o'clock, uh, dig into your wallet, grab your health card, go to a computer, be a donor.ca and find, let's see. And, and when, once you've done it, send me a quick email or uh, send, send me some, something on Facebook or, or Twitter uh, to the radio station and we'll see how many we can get over the course of the afternoon. Uh, but boy, yeah, I, you know what? I felt kind of helpless for the last couple of days. And uh, other than putting the sticks out last night, I think this was the answer. Scott, I uh, look forward to hearing uh, the outcome of your challenge. All right. Ronnie Gabsey has been with us, president and CEO of Trillium Gift of Life Network. The reason we are even having this conversation is Logan Boulay, who was a player of the Humboldt Broncos, uh, 21 years old from Lethbridge, Alberta, lost his life. Before he did that, he signed up and uh, became a donor, let his family know, and now his family has some sort of, of consolation knowing that what, Ogan, what Logan did and his selfless gift uh, has changed the lives of six other people. Ronnie, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Good luck. We'll try to keep it going for you. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The federal liberal cabinet is holding an emergency meeting today to try to save the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension. Uh, Kinder Morgan announced that it was suspending all activity at this point until, I guess, the country figures out what it's going to do. It does not want to put its shareholders at risk anymore for a project that uh, is, is still they're not convinced, being fully supported, uh, although the, the the Prime Minister has certainly says that these resources will get to market. Alberta and B.C. have been fighting uh, nonstop for the last several weeks, months, trying to get something done, and, and the Prime Minister doesn't seem to be really enforcing the laws that are in place. So what is to happen with this emergency cabinet meeting? Will Where will it end up? And where will we be come May 31st, which is the deadline from Kinder Morgan? Let's bring in Matthew Hoffman, professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, Scarborough, and co-director of Monk School Environmental Governance Lab, and is with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. Thanks. It's good to be here. Are you surprised this issue has got this far, Matthew? Um, I'm not, because this is a, it's an incredibly complex issue, and really you have some irreconcilable differences on the on both sides of this issue and so i i was figuring this was going to come to a head and i think that we're seeing that now and it's reaching crisis proportions i think irreconcilable differences that does not sound positive uh in other words that means that even with negotiation there's no gray gray area here it appears it's tough to find a gray area in some cases here and i think 
there's a combination of things going on here, right? You've got jurisdictional issues of who actually can make this decision. And it's fair, the federal government is fairly clear that they can, but the province of British Columbia is saying, well, look, environmental resources is a shared jurisdiction, and First Nations are saying you have to pay attention to our native titling rights as well. And so you've got all of this jurisdictional issues also wrapped up and are intertwined with really the fate of national climate policy. And so you've got all of the issues on both sides on the national climate policy, and so that makes for some some really difficult discussions. So where is there room to move, considering the prime minister said he is supporting all of the environmentalists who are questioning this project and and has gone beyond, over and above, beyond uh, doing what he has to do to protect the environment. But at the end of the day, as he has said, the resources have to get to market. Uh, Is he going to have to come off this fence and take one side or the other? Because he seems to be letting B.C. and Alberta duke it out. Yeah, I'm afraid that he's going to have to, and I think it, it's a really I, – I don't see a way to, to sort of keep moving between these two positions, right? The notion of fossil fuel expansion and full exploitation of fossil fuel resources on the one hand, and a transition to a low-carbon economy and responsible climate policy nationally and globally. Now, I think you could probably set those that big debate aside for this particular issue, but – they're ultimately incompatible, and I think that essentially people, opponents of the pipeline, have said we're no longer going to set this aside. And I, so that puts him in a very difficult position. Uh, as you said, there seems to be very little gray area here. Uh, the premier, the prom- or sorry, the prime minister has said he has gone uh, beyond what is needed for environmental protection. Is there any way to convince those that do not want this, despite any sort of policy? Is there any way to convince them that this is going to go? I mean, at the end of the day, what I see is them trying to build a pipeline and an awful lot of protest. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think so, because, uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure that though the opponents would take Trudeau as saying that he's done gone above and beyond as true, right? Hmm. This is a, a question of whether fossil fuel expansion and whether the expansion of the tar sands that a pipeline like this would allow for makes it harder at best and maybe even impossible to reach the Paris targets. And so it's not something that where people are saying, well, we've done so much already that we'll just let this one by. And it's also really, I think that for a lot of people, don't want to see the sort of symbolic, um, uh, the symbolic nature of climate policy taking a backseat to fossil fuel expansion and interest in this case. So it are, seems are, like business as usual to them. So are we to assume, Matthew, because uh, we are where we are with this, there will be no more further fossil fuel expansion? Because theoretically, if this project goes through, as you said, it's, um, you know, it's contradicting uh, what we what our goals are for 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 the Paris Accord and such. That being said, um, this basically will shut down the industry if this decision is made, will it not? Because it's 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 basically it's basically saying, where do we go from here? Well, I think there's a difference between shutting down or stopping expansion of the tar sands and cutting back what it is now. I mean, and so this is, doesn't necessarily mean we go to zero today, and I don't think that anybody is actually even talking about that. But 
But that being said, will there be any interest from people like Kinder Morgan if, if you know, I mean, again, they've got to protect their shareholders. So if there's, yeah, if there's nothing uh, to be gained here, why go? Why bother? Well, that's the risk that they're, that's the, the sort of risk that they're evaluating. And the, the debate we're seeing right now is whether the governments of Alberta and the federal government want to take that risk off, that risk decision off of Kinder Morgan's shoulders and shoulder it themselves. But ultimately, if we're going to, um, and Trudeau said this and gotten a, uh, got a lot of heat from it, ultimately, if we're going to decarbonize the economy at some point, we need to stop expanding fossil fuel uh, exploitation. So where is this heading? What happens after May 31st? Oh, yeah, I'm not really going to be in the business of prediction because I think that this is, it's really difficult to see. I mean, I think there's there's very powerful interests on both sides. Um, and it's wrapped up in interesting electoral politics as well. And so uh, I think that the federal government, I mean, if I was going to hazard a prediction, the federal government has staked quite a bit on its authority in this case. And so depending on what some of the courts say about uh, BC's right to uh, share jurisdiction over environment, and also the very important um, First Nations rights to titling and their accepted rights to free and prior informed consent. I think that how that plays out is is where the uncertainty is. So what happens to the Canadian economy if this deal falls through? Well, I'm not an economist, and so it's it's tough for me to say. I mean, the... There's no question that the, the fossil fuel industry is an important aspect of the Canadian economy, but there's lots of aspects to the Canadian economy. And I think that one of the things the Trudeau government has been doing really well is promoting this notion of green growth and using carbon neutral or climate friendly technology as another source of economic growth. And what we really need to see over the next over the coming years is a, a just transition, a, a transition away from fossil fuels towards low carbon that acknowledges and does something to try and help the fact that aspects of the economy in multiple provinces are really dependent right now on fossil fuel production. So can we do everything that needs to be done and still build the pipeline? I don't know. There's differing opinions on that. Uh, my take is, I guess, that I would say, no, I think that building the pipeline really endangers our Paris, uh, our Paris targets. But I think you're, there's multiple perspectives on this that are all reasonable, and a, a lot of it comes down to how big a threat you see climate change as. If you see climate change as a, an existential and immediate threat, that colors how you see what this pipeline is. If you see it as a manageable problem moving forward, that's another take on uh, what the implications of this pipeline moving forward would be. Are we not? Are we naive to think that this will be anything more than a very gradual transition? I mean, this is going to take 20, 30 years, is it not? It is, and I, I think that that's a that's a great point. And so, this, so why why what? So but, what would so what would killing a pipeline do now? Well. You know, because I, I think a lot of people think feel that, as you mentioned earlier, Canada has done enough and that we are sort of shouldering the responsibility of the world on our shoulders. Okay. Um, well, a, a, that, that's, a, that's technically not true. I mean, Canada Go ahead. Has, has not done 
has not lived up to its international. We have not lived up to our international obligations under the Kyoto Protocol, and we have not put in place the kind of policies that would allow us to to reach our multiple goals. And this is multiple what what goals. other countries talking about uh, just the Trudeau government. So, what other countries and, have? How do we do this? How, what countries uh, are doing it right? Well, I think some of the countries in Northern Europe, the Scandinavians, are, are doing this right. I think that the Germans, with some fits and starts. Are, are doing and uh, doing this uh, very well, um, but they're under a, a gradual transition as well. And I think you made a great point about that. This is a gradual transition, and I think that the problem is with a gradual transition is getting started. And one thing where countries that are ahead have gotten started, and the question is about the symbolism of expanding pipeline access is. When are you going to get started? And at what point do you start making decisions about getting started? And I think that this is what the opponents of the pipeline are, are really asking. That's one of the questions they're asking. So as we move forward with this, how, how do we balance this, Matthew? How, because, it, again, it, it, we're heading for a, we're on a collision course here. Yeah. Certainly come that, May. That's the... Well, I don't think we can avoid a collision before May, but I think that one of the things that uh, need, we need to have a national conversation about and, and move relatively quickly on is how do we make for a just transition, as I said before? How do we, and I'm not going to say we need to compensate companies and people necessarily with direct payments, but there needs to be a the transition can't just be moving from one kind of economy to another. It has to be about how do you reconcile the fact that some areas of the country are heavily dependent on fossil fuel production and so that it is perfectly natural and in fact justifiable for them to continue to push for this because that's the that's their resource base. That's their economic base. Well, that's the whole country's base, too, is it not? I mean, well, this is a lot you, to the country. Are, the are numbers, we underestimating how much this means to the country, Matthew? Well, I think in, we tend to overestimate how much the fossil fuel industry... All right, so let me ask the you this. The fossil fuel industry plays in, in the economy. The how economy can we, is actually pretty diverse. How can we compromise? How can we make that just transition when the opponents just say no? Doesn't matter. Don't want it. Fossil fuels stand in the ground. So how do you make that just transition? How do you how do you fiscally responsibly move from one era to another when it's just nope, no more? I mean that well, seems almost to the opposite extreme as opposed to common sense in the middle. Potentially, except that I think we have to be clear on what the opponents are talking about right now. The opponents are talking about stopping expansion. Right? And so one of the, the questions to have is to be realistic about the fact that we are going to be producing fossil fuels for the next 30 years. But the, the question is whether it is responsible to be expanding exploitation of fossil fuel resources. And then from that to say, okay, there are things that we can do, job training, subsidies, there's some things that government can do, there's things that private sector can do to start over time to reduce and in fact, the Alberta Climate Plan, I think, does a good job of this, to start to reduce the dependence mm -hmm. of, in this case, Alberta, on that fossil fuel base for their economy. Why don't we use one to finance the other? It, 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 why, again, during that transition period? Well, and I think that that's what people are talking about. But again, using expansion of fossil fuel resources to finance that is 
means that you're just going to keep locking in the infrastructure for increased use of fossil fuels. Yeah. And that's what's incompatible. But what do we do so for I the next... Using th- the, the resources as we are starting to wean off of fossil fuels, using the resources from that to finance the low-carbon transition is, is, a, is a great plan. But not keeping digging when you're in a hole is, I think, one of the things the opponents are talking about. Hmm. Do you think we need to keep digging that hole for the next 30 years? Um, I hope not. I, I think we need to be filling in that hole to sort of abuse that metaphor. Um, we need, if the global projections are right, we need countries in the global north to be 80% reductions in emissions and by 2050 to start avoiding some of the, the worst consequences. And so... Yes, we need to start seeing decarbonization of our of our economy, not just in Canada, but in other places. Do you think this pipeline will be built, Matthew? Oh, you keep asking me for predictions. Um, <laughs> you know, really, it shouldn't be a prediction when you think about it. Yeah. Um, I have my doubts. I'm not sure that the economic case for moving forward on this pipeline is going to be as strong, given the uncertainty and risk. Um, both on the sort of risk from the protests, risk from the provincial politics, but also the risk in terms of global demand for oil, which if people are, if other countries are serious about their Paris uh, commitments, which is always a, a question, but if they are, then demand for oil is going to decrease over time. Matthew Hobman is with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, Scarborough, and co-director of the Monk School's Environmental Governance Lab. Matthew, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. This is another, this is a tremendous story, and and you might remember this, um, Back in October of 2015, in the town of St. George, Ontario, a Canadian, a Canadian mother will be heading to India to watch the premiere of a film inspired by the story of her seven-year-old son who got to celebrate Christmas in October before he died of a terminal illness. Uh, Evan Leverzage, town of St. George, Ontario, came together October 2015 to throw a parade complete with artificial snow and Santa. Remember this? Uh, Evan had inoperable a brain tumor and asked his mother for one last Christmas uh, and worried, of course, that her boy would not live until late December. And uh, she decided to, why not? And, and I remember seeing the shots of this. It, it, was, it was great to see. Well, Evan's story has been adapted by an Indian filmmaker. And the story that Evan's mom and, and, and everybody documented on Facebook inspired this filmmaker to make a movie based on this, very similar. Uh, let's bring in Nicole Wellwood. She is the mother of Evan and is with us now. Nicole, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. No problem, Scott. So how did this, first of all, tell us about Evan. Oh, he was an amazing boy. He was simply magical by everybody who had um, got the privilege to know him. Um, never complained once about his illness or being dealt this hand in life. Um, if anything, he just wanted to make the best of it. And um, he did very much do that right and, until the end. And how long was Evan ill? 
Um, I found out right before you turned two uh, that he had an inoperable brain tumor. Um, I was told then that it was in the worst possible location um, for a brain tumor for children, uh, I guess in adults too. Um, there was nothing that they could do. That chemo radiation was just basically going to be a bandage. Um, and so he underwent 70 weeks of chemotherapy originally. He had two good years uh, where he went to school and he tried to be as normal as he could be. Mm-hmm. Um, well, obviously doing MRIs every 12 weeks and uh, having quite a bit of hospital stays. Uh, and then I found out um, it would have been 2015, January, um, that Evan's tumor had grown uh, and no longer was a low-grade tumor. It transitioned to a high-grade tumor. And so that changed everything. Uh, he underwent aggressive radiation for 30 rounds, um, followed with uh, an oral chemotherapy. Um, it proved to, for a couple months, it looked like it had worked. Uh, his tumor did appear that it had shrunk. Um, but obviously, in September, I learned that the tumor had uh, started branching out to different regions of his brain, and there was nothing left for doctors to do. So then what happened? Well, obviously, uh, when I got the news, I didn't know how to handle it. Um, it was, came as a complete shock to me because I was under the assumption that his tumor was mm. reacting to the treatment. Um, so I said basically to them, I said, well, what am I supposed to do? How do I handle this from here on out? Like, how do I live not knowing when the end is? And I knew the end was coming. And uh, they said, you know, the best you can do is just be honest with him to make the most you have left with him. And they encouraged me to make a bucket list um, of things Evan would like to do before he passed away. And, you know, oddly enough, um, he handled it so bravely and he amazed me. Uh, His wishes were very simple, a lot of them, just like dinners out at his favorite restaurants, um, Mm. a lot of things based around spending time with family and friends. Um, And, you know, it really amazed me, and obviously having Christmas was on there, and I had asked the doctors, because I didn't want to make a big uproar um, for Christmas, and, you know, I asked them, I said, like, you know, is he going to be here at Christmas? And they were very clear, and they said, you know, if it's important to you, you need to bring it to October, yeah. um, which was only, like, literally less than a few weeks, uh, like, you know, from when I learned that mm. we were doing all this, and... Uh, I I just, I left that office that day. I called my cousin in St. Mary's and I said, you know, Ashley, um, we need to get the family together. We need to celebrate Christmas. I never imagined anything to the magnitude that what happened. Um, Perth County EMS, <clears throat> they stepped in. Uh, they held a Christmas supper and everything and they came and decorated my house. Uh, and, you know, obviously, as you know, and the story says, it went worldwide. Uh, we all remember seeing those pictures. Yeah. He was so yeah. happy. He was incredibly happy. Yeah. Yeah. How old was he when he passed? He was seven years old. Um, his birthday was September 14th and he, uh, he only was seven for a few months. So he was seven. Yeah. So obviously this was documented. We all saw this. We all, I remember seeing the pictures very vividly of, of how this town had rallied around you and, and your family and such. Um, how did it get to, how did it get to the point where it was inspiring a filmmaker? You know, um, I think it honestly is how for one cause, everybody came together. Um, it didn't matter about your religious beliefs. Um, it didn't matter about anything. You know, we had people that didn't even believe in Christmas reaching out to us. Everybody just wanted to make Evan happy. Um, Evan, I always said, like, he 
managed to stir the hearts of many people and inspire people just by being himself. He never had any big words of wisdom. He was very limited for vocabulary and speech. Um, but I think his smile and the way that he faced knowing that the end of his life was going to be coming, I think it just made people realize that, you know, to make the best of the time we have, um, no different than Evan did. Because I, I know for myself, I'm an adult, and if I found out I was going to pass away, I don't know if I would handle it with the grace mm. um, and the braveness that he did. And, uh, you know, even for me, it just, I couldn't have been more inspired um, by the way he just continuously kept everybody around him strong, like even myself. You know, I always felt like the mother should be the one comforting the child, that it should be me kind of being that security blanket around him saying, it's going to be okay. Mm. But it wasn't like that. You know, Evan was the one that stepped up. He was seven years old and he would wake me up in the middle of the night and he would say very clearly, mama, I'm not leaving you. He would make it very clear that he believed he was going somewhere beautiful. Um, and he had no fear. And that's what really amazed me. Like even when things got really, 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 really rough at the end, um, and, you know, he had no more he could speak. Uh, he had trouble swallowing. He was basically surviving on, like, ice chips and me swabbing his mouth. Um, you know, he tried to smile, even though he didn't have the muscles to. But oddly enough, when he passed away and I had seen his face, he was smiling. Um, so I truly believe Evan did know long before. And I think he really did try to hold on as long as he could. Um, which, you know, it just proved to me how much of a fighter he was. How do you explain that? It was hard to just even Evan. even your react like his reaction, you know, him him being more mature about it and and accepting of it than than someone his age. How do you explain that? You know what? It's hard for me to explain. It really is. Um, like I never had the words for Evan. I know, like in one time, you know, he obviously he knew a lot more than probably what a seven year old should. And you know, I always have this one memory. We were at McMaster. And um, a child was receiving end of treatment and they were holding a celebration. And it was the first time he kind of looked at me and he, he inquired. He said, Mama, he goes, why me and not him? And I knew what he was saying. And I, 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 and I got it. And I basically said, like, Evan, they don't have the answers. And, you know, that's where I had to launch his foundation because there isn't the money to back the research that's needed. And I feel that kids shouldn't have to face the road that Evan faced. Um, you know, it, it's not that he wanted to pass away. It was research that failed us. Yeah. It was not having any more options. And, you know, that's how I explained it to him. And I made a promise to him. I said, you know, buddy, I know how hard you fought. I know you want to stay. And I said, I will be your voice from here on out. I, I won't give up your fight. I'm not going to back down from this. And, you know, it's been one heck of a struggle, but I'm determined that, you know, I don't want another parent. I don't want another child to feel what we've had to feel. And I know there's far too many parents out there that have lost a child, uh, child to cancer, brain tumors, and it's not right. It's really not. So, you know, it's, it's been a hard one for me to explain because it, it was the research that failed us and not having the answers or a cure or even more treatments uh, options that could, you know, keep him going. So talk about how the filmmaker got a hold of you, how this whole thing started. Honestly, he got a hold of me over Facebook. Um, and obviously, when you have somebody contact you from India, you're kind of like, 
Really? Like, because, you know, yeah. I, I always tell people I've seen the best of humanity, but I yeah. also seen the worst of humanity when Evan's story went um, worldwide. And, you know, I was very on edge. Um, I didn't know well, how to uh, but Let me interrupt you there. What was, yeah. you know, uh, this went viral. It was an incredible story. So, mm-hmm. so what was the worst that you saw? A lot like of where people were, did you actually get negative response from this? You know what? Surprisingly, there was. Um, I had a lot of um, people that proclaimed that there was cures for Evan, that I just wasn't open-minded enough to try them. Oh, um, you know, I, I realized, um, you know, it took me a while, but a lot of people played on the vulnerability piece. Um, I was not in good space, yeah. obviously, with dealing with Evan, the situation, his passing. And, you know, I really seen the true colors of not-so-good people. And, you know, it, it's sad, but, you know, I, I try to always remember there was a lot of good to this, too. But, you know, don't think that, you know, I didn't um, live a nightmare uh, seeing the true colors of people afterwards because wow. I really did. That's sad. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the filmmaker gets a hold of you by Facebook. Obviously, you're apprehensive about this. Yeah. Uh, when did this all start? At what stage are we now? You know what? It would have been about a year ago. Um, and, you know, I, I was at a phase in life where, you know, I had something good come into my life. Um, and I, I was starting to feel a bit better about myself. Uh, I, I was still coming to terms with Evan. And, you know, um, just from there, you know, it, it's been a positive journey. Like he, Surjit has been amazing at keeping me up to date. Um the way he explained how Evan inspired him, really, it was remarkable. Like, he, he, the big thing was, is he just couldn't believe that so many people could come together and, you know, Evan's smile in the town of St. George and how, in a matter of a few weeks, like, we literally, mob- like, mobilized a, an extremely amazing event that, you know, it went far beyond the borders of this town. Um, and so... You know, uh, over the year, like I did take a step down from doing things in the public eye and with Evans Foundation. Um, I made it very clear to a lot of people that I just I needed to focus on me. I needed to focus on my boys. I needed to focus on figuring out what life was supposed to be like without Evan, because a lot of my life was devoted to Evan. And so when you took that piece away, it was almost like being completely lost. And, you know, I, I've had a lot of blessings. Um, come into my life since then that, you know, have really helped shape me to be the person I am. Can I ask you what? And if it's too um, personal, don't tell me. You know why? It, it's been a relationship. Good for um, you. I've, Good for I've you. had a person come into my life and they believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. Hmm. Uh, they made me feel strength. Um, you know, I, I had no self-esteem, obviously, after just years upon years of this struggle. And they really just raised me up, and they added a lot of sunshine. They've stepped in to act as a role model to my boys. Um, and, you know, I it's changed my life. And, you know, they, they have been that shoulder. They've been my strength when I just feel like I'm going to fall apart. And so, you know, for the last year and a half, it's just been trying to figure out. And, you know, I always say it's like bittersweet because I found such genuine happiness in the saddest time of my life. Wow. And there's hope. There's hope for everyone there. there. No, there is. Absolutely. Uh, So tell us what happens in June. 
So in June, um, the beginning of June, I am leaving with my cousin, Ashley, who is um, Evan's aunt because I don't have siblings. So she stepped in in the aunt role. Um, she also hosts an event in his honor called Evan's Touch a Truck that she launched in St. Mary's after his diagnosis that has become a phenomenal event that's supported by the OPP and, um, you know, paramedics and orange helicopter lands and, you know, the Golden Helmets have performed a couple times there. And, you know, so I couldn't think of anybody more fitting to come with me on this adventure. And so he had offered for um, to pay for another flight for whoever I wanted. And, you know, I, I said to my cousin, I'm like, you know what, we went to war together. Like, let's, let's do this. And, you know, she was a big one that always proclaimed Evan was magic. She, you know, even in her eulogy at his funeral, she said, you know, there was something about him that he was just magical. And, you know, it's, I, I said to her, I'm like, well, two years after his passing and I'm like, this is his magic. And what will I it really be like for you? That. What will it be like for you to sit in that theater and watch this, this story? You know, there's going to be so many emotions, you know, there's, I'm ridiculously proud of Evan. Mm. I am so proud of my son. I am so proud of the fight he endured. It inspires me to know that my seven-year-old son was able to inspire people that are far from where we live. Um, you know, and I'm mixed because sitting in the theater and actually seeing this film from my own eyes, um, I know that there will be credits rolling with a dedication to Evan afterwards. And, you know, it, it's it's going to be a bittersweet moment for me because I would give anything to have my son back. Um, but on the same note, it warms my heart that his memory is still living on and making an impact. You know what else, Nicole? Be proud of yourself, too. What a journey. It has been definitely a journey, yeah. My goodness. And, you know, for pulling all of this Christmas together in October of 2015, I, I remember seeing the pictures and I remember us all talking about it in the newsroom and, and how we were all moved by that. So be proud of yourself, too. Nicole Wellwood has been with us, mother of Evan. And coming up this June, she will uh, take off to India to watch the premiere of a movie which uh, was inspired by her son. And Canadian showings. I understand you're going to bring it back here, and it's got some Canadian, uh, runs at some Canadian film festivals, too. It will be. We are hoping to have a premiere in Toronto. I know that a few film festivals have picked up the movie, and uh, we actually are currently just starting work on a movie in the park here in St. George. Um, so we're hoping to raise some money for Evan's foundation, uh, Evan's legacy that I partnered with the Brain Tumor Foundation of Canada to create, and hopefully we can do our part to uh, bring some more research for these children. Mother to Evan, Nicole Wellwood, paying it forward. Nicole, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.